In our latest episode of Julius Baer's True Connections podcast, Callum Brewster speaks with Paul McGregor, founder of Every Mind at Work, about his experiences with mental health and how we can work towards improving the mental health of ourselves and those around us. Hi, Paul. Lovely to speak to you today. What I was thinking that might help our listeners is for you to tell a little bit about your story and your background and what you're doing today. Obviously, mental health is probably high on everyone's agenda today, more so than it's ever been, certainly in my lifetime. And I just thought it'd be really helpful for everyone if you were able to share a little bit of your story and how you got to where you are today. Of course, and thank you for having me. It's always hard to compress the story into something without going on for too long. But it's personally for me, as I'm sure with many people, mental illness was something that never really crossed my mind for a huge portion of my early life, so all the way up until about 18. And the way that I describe it is mental illness was only really what was in the movies. It was only really discussed loosely, and it would never affect me. It would never affect my family until it did. And, you know, I was impacted through my dad. My dad was someone who had everything on paper and the fact that he was a full-time engineer. He had a part-time physiotherapy business. My dad had a psychology degree. He ran every day. People often called him perfect and, and, some, and people have always said that to me now as well. And, you know, he ticked every box and no signs of a mental illness until one day he had a, a breakdown when I was 18 years old. And breakdown is the only way that I can really kind of describe it looking back. And, you know, sadly, that breakdown happened. He seeked help quite quickly from the doctors and attempted on his life very quickly after that as well, which was obviously a huge shock to us all. And it was, you know, a real battle for about six months. My dad ended up in a psychiatric unit, which, again, was something that I would never imagine my dad or my family to be exposed to. And then very sadly, we did lose him to suicide back on the 4th of March 2009. And that's kind of where my journey began with mental health, dealing with that grief, dealing with suicide grief is very difficult. The unanswered questions of why depression, anxiety kicked in. I was 18, nearly 19. I just started my career. You know, all of these kind of periods, I found it quite difficult to deal with. And, you know, luckily I, I got help during that period and started to answer those questions. And then fast forward sort of seven, eight years later, I wanted to kind of share that story with people. And that's kind of where it began. And that's led me to obviously the work that I do today. And extremely sad that we've spoken before, Paul, and you express it as it's actually given you some strength in relation to who you are today. Mm-hmm. One of the things recently, this week, I've actually been seeing friends and associates posting things on Facebook about male suicides, which we hear a lot of coverage of today. And one of the things that I still sense myself is the labels that are attached to mental illness. Do you feel we've made good inroads into understanding that and being able to talk about it more openly like we are today, or is there much more to be done? I feel like we're definitely making progress. And as you said, with the statistics that surround male suicide, Oh, I didn't even know those statistics until I would say about four years ago. And that's someone who's been affected by it. And the statistics have always been quite bad. I believe we are having a huge amount of awareness around mental health now, which is great. That awareness causes people to maybe want to seek help, maybe want to speak out about it. It normalizes it, which is a big mission of mine. It's kind of normalizing that conversation. I have mental health, you have mental health. We all have it. Um, the same with physical health. So why can't we openly discuss it. But at the same time, I think we are definitely lacking with prevention. We're definitely lacking with that support. 
and awareness is great to get more people talking about it, but we need to obviously focus on the prevention side of it too as well. But coming back to your point, it's great to see those people sharing more openly about it because that would definitely help with the stigma. And maybe if we just keep on that theme about prevention, so in one of your blogs that I was reading, you said social media is the new smoking, which actually resonated with me. I actually did relate to that really well. I understood what you were meaning by that. I was curious if you could expand what you mean by that for the listeners and also if you could share maybe what you mean by prevention because, again, I think there's misinterpretation at times in society of what people mean by that. Yeah, with social media, I believe social media is, the double-edged sword. Social media is very bad for mental health if we are constantly scrolling, comparing ourselves to what we're seeing on social media, especially during this time. I did a quick post the other day. My wife was working at the NHS, not last week, the week before. I was juggling work with homeschooling, as many parents were. And we had the schedule, you know, we had it all planned out and nothing goes to plan and things happened and we did our best. And then I quickly go on social media and I see all these parents having smiley faces of how they're really grasping this homeschooling. And social media is a highlight reel. We just post the best parts of our day on it. And I feel like when we're comparing our reality to that, it can have a real impact on our mental health. And when I said it's the new smoking, it's almost because it's extremely addictive. It's something that we're all exposed to, but we don't really have much education around the best ways of using it. And I'm too young to know, but I'm guessing with smoking, looking back at that, you know, it's very similar to that, how a lot of people did smoke before they were educated on it, before they understood the risks of it. And when it comes to the prevention, I think, one, it's very conditional, very generational. So what I mean by that is my granddad's generation were conditioned a certain way around mental health, and that served him, you know, through war, that served him through losing my dad, losing my nan, and that whole stiff up a lit man up attitude has served him, but that's his conditioning. My dad's conditioning, I don't think helped him because that was his way of seeing how he should deal with mental health, which caused him to not talk about it and try and deal with it alone. Then the way that I deal with it, my generation and then my kids' generation, generations after that, I do believe it's very generational. And when we do talk about prevention, it's trying to get in as early as possible whether it starts at school for the next generation that's amazing but for the generations that you know already here it's about for me proactively managing mental health not reacting to it which is what we all do we wait until we're at rock bottom before we get help we wait until we're feeling terrible before we reach out for that support we don't proactively manage it and this isn't my quote but it's a really good quote to kind of explain that proactive measurement of You wouldn't wait for every bone to break in your body before you treated a broken arm. But we treat mental health that way. And it's about trying to focus on it early so we don't get to rock bottom where it's almost too hard to seek help and we try and manage it day to day as well. And if I could come back, you speak about your grandfather as well as your father a lot. And I read a nice story about your grandfather and how he dealt with it from the generation he was in. And I can think of my own mother who will say things that will just get on with it and just shake Mm. yourself down, which is very different from my generation and, again, my own kids. And, again, I think it would be a nice interlude here if you were able to explain that little story you talked about your grandfather and some of the things he experienced and how he dealt with it. And also I'd welcome your views on then how does each of these generations share and help educate and speak about these things together because we have come from very different backgrounds, different environments, and therefore, it can be challenging to get your head around that. Yeah, I feel my granddad's 94, so he's 95 in June. He's alive, still 
an amazing guy who inspires me every day. But matter of fact, he has lost a lot of his physical health. So my granddad, 94, 95, does his best, but he has carers four or five times a day. He's housebound. He doesn't go out. Obviously, it's hard for us currently going through this because I can't actually visit him, but I start him when the carer rings me. And what's different about how he deals with things now in comparison to before is huge because my granddad's more emotional now. He cries a lot. And the stories I always explain is I never saw my granddad cry. My dad died. My dad was an only child, my granddad's only child. And, you know, obviously the way he died as well is very painful. My granddad never kind of showed any emotion during that period. And in fact, my granddad was the person who went to the police station when it all happened and identified him with my brother and came in to tell us the news and said to us, it's done, it's over. And that was his way of just letting us all know softly that this tragedy had happened. And then the funeral, no tears. My nan then died, you know, my granddad's wife of over 50 years. She died a month after. So, you know, he lost his only son, his wife, within the space of, you know, a month. No tears during that. Just, you know, let's get on with it. Let's just continue to push forward. Always jokes. Like, that was my granddad's way of dealing with his emotions, telling jokes, which my nan used to tell him off for many times. And, you know, I look at that and I think that served my granddad for that time. You know, he'd been through war. He'd lost his friends in war. He'd lost family members. But... Seeing this side to him now where he's more emotional and he's coming to the end of his life and he's more vocal about, you know, even, I know I'm rambling here, but just a story recently when I used to talk to him a little bit about the war and he used to just talk openly about it. I asked him about the war recently and he just broke down in tears and started saying some really bad stories and you could see that he was emotionally distressed by it and I tried changing the subject. But I think that's the way that he's dealt with it, that suppressing of emotion, putting on that brave face, getting through it. And I think it's very difficult. But I think, you know, looking at my granddad, they had that community element. You know, my granddad knows every neighbor down his road because they had that. Whereas with us, we have the social media element. I think it's hard to compare the resilience of different generations because we're all brought up very differently as well. Yeah. And you talk as well about mindfulness Mm. to stop overthinking. And, And I think, you know, you've touched on that with different communities and different generations on how you're relationships and the people around about how you share and discuss matters. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about mindfulness and what you mean by that. Mindfulness is defined, I think, very differently. Meditation was something my dad even practiced. So my dad used to practice meditation. And this was, he must have been doing it in 2005, 2006. So meditation wasn't really as popular as it is back then. And I remember when we were younger, my dad tried to get us to meditate and he just explained it to us of, you know, close your eyes, breathe deep and clear your mind. And I found that very difficult because I couldn't clear my mind because it's so busy with everything going on. And when I started to practice more mindfulness, I started to realize that it's more just focus on breathing, being as present as we can, taking that kind of space out in our day to kind of reflect and obviously calm down. And mindfulness comes in different ways as well. You know, you could use some of the apps that are out there, Headspace, Calm apps that you can use. You could do a short meditation, like five minutes. You can do small little techniques such as box breathing, which is kind of breathe in for four, out for four, and kind of go around and imagine a box. You've got 
simple ones like four, two, six, which is breathe in for four, hold for two, out for six. If you find yourself doing that a couple of times, you'll actually find that you do start to calm down and things start to become a lot easier to deal with. But for me, mindfulness isn't something that I actually practice as much as I used to. For me now, running, going for a run is my mindfulness. It's just me out there just trying to clear my mind. For many others, not now. It could be golf. It could be walking the dog. You know, there's various different ways of finding that space. And trying to have that in your day is really important, I feel, because everything is so busy. Having that mindfulness practice, whatever it looks like for you, for me, is really important. So I suppose listening to you, Paul, you think more about health as a collective thing rather than actually separating physical and mental health. You just see it as the human health agenda rather than two separate identifiable things. You think we're moving more towards thinking that way and what else would help us get there quicker? Yeah, I believe we are. I believe it's a trick question, but I often ask it in my talks of, do you have mental health? And sometimes you see puzzled looks because people feel, well, obviously I do, but they still find it hard to understand that they do. I feel like we're a long way off that. I feel like people still prioritize physical health because it's just what we're told to do, especially through advertising, through the products that are out there. It's all about keeping ourselves physically healthy. And there's definitely a link that if we do keep physically healthy, it will improve our mental health as well. But I do hope that we do move it closer to me looking after my mental health has that effect that I don't want to say call, but is normalized that I can look after my mental health and not feel like I'm being judged, not feel like I'm being frowned upon. It's just something that we all do naturally because it's something that we need to start prioritizing. And right now, obviously, many of us are adapting the way we work in the current environment. I was just wondering why you believe having a clear agenda and open environment around about mental health in the workplace is a priority. What benefits do you see from organizations that are open and discuss these matters with their colleagues and employees? What benefits does that bring a business? I think there's lots of benefits. I always kind of lead with the one that it's just the right thing to do now. It's your staff, employees, the humans, and the more that we can support them with their mental health, the better. As we kind of alluded to a little bit as well is when we do look at the statistics, it's very likely with a workforce of 100, 1,000, even you know, a small workforce of 10, that you're going to have people there that may be challenged with their mental health. So it's the right thing to do. But if we look at it from a business corporate point of view as well, improved mental health obviously leads to higher productivity. There's a real focus on what people call presenteeism, which are bums on seats, but not actually actively doing work because maybe mentally they're not in a very good place. You know, everyone can relate to this. If you're feeling good mentally, your productivity is a lot higher. But if you're feeling burnt out, if you're feeling stressed, if you're not in a very good mindset, you know, your productivity is obviously going to be impacted. So the business, if we can create that open environment, if we can focus on, you know, mental health, we can increase productivity, lower job retention as well. People not leaving their jobs if they're happy within that environment. And of course, it can potentially lead to more income later on as well, if that's going to be the focus of the business. But as we've said, and I know Julius Baer in particular are really focused on this from the work that I've done. It's just the right thing to do for organizations now, especially as well during this period of time as well. And one of the things, uh, Julius Baer, and I'm sure many people listening and many other organizations are thinking about this as we adapt and more people are working from home and juggling things as you and your wife are between young families mm. or maybe both of you working at home at the same time or trying to cope with all of that. One of the things that we often say is that humans do not like change and we are facing lots and lots of change right now, some of it 
unwelcomed, some of it not asked for, but lots of change. You often reference as well the benefits of having a good, strong routine. What advice would you give right now about trying to create that new routine? Yeah, I think, as you said, we do struggle with change. I've struggled. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say that I haven't found this difficult. And I don't think anyone has the answers to something like this. It's more of doing what we can to best deal with it. And I believe, as you've said, having a routine is a really good way. We've put out a lot of content as well. And my company, Every Mind at Work, we've put out a lot of content around, you know, how to support yourself while working from home. And a lot of it comes down to, as you said, that solid routine that closely matches the routine that you're used to. So on a Monday, maybe waking up at the same time, having a similar morning routine, you know, even silly things like, you know, having a shower, getting yourself ready for work and then setting yourself up at the desk and trying to manage and control your environment as best as you can. All of that will dramatically improve productivity. But I think as well, a really key point is to not overjudge ourselves during this period. I've done it as well where I've created a huge to-do list and I haven't done six tasks on it and I end up beating myself up. Or the kids are trying to be homeschooled and maybe I've set expectations for me and for them and we haven't been able to sort of manage it. I think this period is about doing our best and knowing that we're reacting, knowing that we have to focus on the little small wins that we can have every single day, but knowing that it's not going to be perfect and we're going to slowly, slowly start to improve as we spend more time in this situation as well. And if you're listening to this and you're somebody who's within a business or indeed owns or founded a business right now and you feel you've made some progress on this agenda with the organization you're within, but you want to take it to the next level, what would you be advising companies right now who have taken it so far but want to take it to the next level? What's your guidance to them? I feel like with improving mental health at work, if you've done stuff, which a lot of organizations are doing now, it really, for me, is about doing a bit more. So it's not the perfect answer, but, you know, mental health is so individual. So my kind of advice to businesses is, you know, try more, listen, see what kind of feedback you get, and then double down on what works. So some organizations are doing live mindfulness sessions, they're doing live yoga sessions. Some people are deploying an app that, their employees can use at the same time you know they might be doing online courses or mental health first aid whatever it is it's about trying and seeing what feedback you get and then maybe as i say focusing on the ones that get the best feedback so some people will just put yoga on on a friday and continue running it and continue running it without having that feedback loop of this is something that our staff want or don't want it's about trying more and i think that's very similar to mental health individually as well what helped me was trying as much as i possibly could and seeing what personally helped me and then obviously using those tools that i now have to improve my mental health and i think it's similar to the workplace you know try as much as you can find out what works for your workplace and then continue working on those ones that do and if anyone's listening to this right now and they're feeling that they are struggling with their own mental health what advice would you give to them right now Firstly, I would say you're not alone. And when you're in that place, I've been in that place, and your mind will tell you that you are. Your mind will put you in that negative cycle of beating yourself up and telling you that you're on your own and there's no way out of this. I would say reach out, you know, and I know that it's very difficult and there's ways of doing it. During this period, it's even harder. But we're very lucky that there's various different services out there that you can utilize with the technology that we have. One of them that I always kind of recommend now in particular is a tech service called Shout. It's actually one of the ambassadors is Prince William, but Shout is a 24-7 tech service that you can use. The number is 85258 in the UK. 
and that's there as almost like a hotline. But also if you just want someone to be at the end of that tech service, you have obviously other hotlines, Samaritans, Calm, which is focused on men, Papyrus, which is focused on parents. There's a lot out there. But I would say reach out, whether it's a friend, whether you write it down, whether you speak to a family member at home, that know that you're not alone. And I know that's kind of the advice that everyone gives. But when you get to that stage, it kind of really is almost a weight lifted off your shoulder. And it's the kind of next step that you can then take as well. Great. Paul, as always, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you again. And thanks for being so open and sharing your story. I know your father would be extremely proud of what you've done and how you've tackled and changed your life around to support not just yourself, but others around about you. I really appreciate you sharing that with us today, Paul. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. That's all for this edition of Julius Baer's True Connections podcast. Thank you for listening. And please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and at juliusbear.com. Mm-hmm.